could really do nothing, but with you we can do anything. And we're thankful that the life which we now live, we are able to live through faith in the Son of God. We thank you this morning for the truths we have heard about you already that we have sung to you and that we've heard through song. And we pray as we open up uh, the Word of God that you would speak to us through the written Word, and that you would challenge us, your Holy Spirit would convict us and change us, and that we would leave here knowing that Jesus is indeed better than anyone or anything else in this world. And it's in his good and holy and precious name we pray, amen and amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible and open with me to the book of Esther for the final time in this series as we wrap up our series from Esther today, a series that we've called Jesus is better. Now, someone asked me earlier why we couldn't just keep going in the series of Esther, and I gave them this uh, uh, deep uh, theological seminary answer. Are you ready for it? Ain't no more chapters. <laughs> I mean, when we finish today, that's it. And if we add another chapter, that becomes the other testament of Jesus Christ, and we ain't into that. So, uh, we're going to look today at Esther chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. We'll read the rest of chapter 9 as well as the three verses that compose chapter 3. There is a theme that has been woven throughout this book of Esther, several themes. One of the great themes that has been woven throughout this book is the theme of salvation. We have seen people and groups of people experience salvation from death. For example, we saw that Mordecai was sentenced to die, but in a great reversal, he experienced salvation and escaped death. We saw how the people of God, the Jewish people, that they were under an edict, a sentence from the king, a sentence of death, and through a great reversal that we looked at last week, they went from death to salvation. Today, we're going to see how their salvation in the previous chapters were requires a celebration, which salvations always do. As uh, you think about all the feasts that the Jewish people have, they still celebrate a feast today. It's called the Feast of Purim, and Purim is based upon the events in which we will read today. Its origins are found right here. As God's people experience salvation, they respond with celebration. So as the book of Esther excuse me, comes to a conclusion, a summary is given of God's salvation so that there might be celebration. Here's your main idea and what we'll flesh out, excuse me, flesh out through our time together. Salvation always leads to celebration. Okay, we'll repeat that. That is the theme of what we'll see this morning. Salvation always leads to celebration. So I want you to notice briefly this morning three things from the rest of the book of Esther that we think about as we focus about how Jesus is better, and today we'll see that Jesus is a better Mordecai. The first thing I want you to see is that there is a party in which to participate. 
this text shows us that there is a party in which the people of God are to participate. Our text begins in Esther chapter 9 and verse 20, which tells us that Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. Holiday literally means holy day. That they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he, Haman, and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. This is a brief history, a brief recap that reminds us of the great reversal that occurred that we've seen in previous weeks, that Haman had plotted to kill Mordecai, but it was Mordecai who lived, and Haman, who hung upon his own cross, so to speak, in his own yard, that it was God's people that were going to be destroyed, but they were saved, and it was God's enemies who were destroyed. Verse 26 tells us, therefore, they call these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered, celebrated, a party's taking place. And they they should be kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into disguise among the Jews. Nor should the commemoration of these days cease from among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their feast and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it 
was recorded in writing. In other words, what that text is telling us is they set up a system in which they were going to celebrate year after year after year, in which they still celebrate today the goodness of God in saving them from this plot to kill all of them. Purim for them was a party. It was a celebration. And let me share with you for just a second why they are celebrating. Remember, salvation demands a celebration. And one of the things we need to work on as God's people is celebrating our salvation. And we can learn from our spiritual ancestors, these Jewish people, their their deliverance from physical death. We can learn something about our deliverance from spiritual death. You see, Purim was a party because Purim was a celebration of God's power over their enemy. Haman, the text tells us, Haman, who was this pagan, godless, evil man, Haman said, I'm going to devise a system to figure out what to do with these Jews. To do that, he cast lots, what they called a poor, and he cast them to see what would happen to the people. Now, that practice is something that would be similar to, in our culture, some practice of divination, some practice of of sorcery. You think about seeking out a a medium or or using a Ouija board. They would cast these lots and they believe that in casting the dice that the, the die would tell them what they should do and the steps that they should take. And their assumption and their presumption was that if they roll the dice, then the the spirit realm, the realm of the unseen, would control what happens in the physical realm. So Haman cast lots and in some way that he interpreted them or they were interpreted for him, he issued this decree to assassinate God's people. In a great reversal, God saves his people, hence they call this holiday Purim. The point that we want to make is that God is greater than Satan. That God's plans are greater than the plans of the enemies. It is the sovereignty and the providence of God. Think of it this way. Haman may have rolled the dice, but it was God who controlled the dice. (laughs) Haman might have rolled it, but it was God who controlled it. You see, Satan had put it into Haman's heart to cause the destruction of God's people, but God said, no, 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 I'm not going to, Haman, you roll the dice, but I'm going to control the dice. I'm going to control what has happened. Satan has a goal. Satan has made a decision to destroy us as God's people, but our God is more powerful than Satan, and he has protected us. He has delivered us. He has saved us. And that demonstration of his power requires celebration. For four people who think it does with me this morning. (laughs) Purim was a celebration of God's power over the enemy. But not only that, Purim was a celebration of of God's generosity. Notice that (coughs) back in our text it tells us that During this festival, during this feast, that there were days for sending gifts of food to one another. 
There were days of giving gifts to the poor. These are people who love God. These are people who have received the love of God, and they demonstrate that generosity toward others. They celebrated God's goodness to them by being generous to others. Do not overlook the opportunities you have in your life to celebrate God's generosity to you by being generous to other people. God loved the world so much that he what? He gave. God is a giver. And as we give of ourselves, as we give of our income, as we give of our talents, as we give of our treasures, as we give of our time, as we give, we demonstrate his affection. But more than anything else, as to why Purim was a party, is that Purim was a celebration to glorify God. Why should we celebrate our deliverance? Certainly to recount our deliverance and and certainly to point people to our deliverance. But more than anything else, we celebrate our deliverance from sin because it's a celebration that glorifies God. You see, much of the storyline of Esther has been a series of banquets and feasts and parties that dishonor God. Remember back at the first of the book, it opens up by telling us that the king called for this big party for the entire nation and, and for his select, a further party for his select group of men who served him. And, and they're full of feasts and parties that dishonor God. The people are drunk. Women are abused. Things are out of control. Things are bad. Evil decisions are made. And Purim shows us how to redeem feasting, how to celebrate not in defiance of God, but in the presence of God. I want you to hear my heart this morning. Most of us are better at mourning than we are at celebrating. Most of us are better at finding everything that's wrong about the world around us instead of celebrating the God who has saved us. Many of us are too consumed with talking about what's wrong with life instead of thinking about what's right with our God. I want you to hear me this morning. If you are a child of God, understand that God became a man for you. That God lived without sin for you. That God, Jesus, died for your sin. That Jesus rose as your Savior. That Jesus has put the Holy Spirit within you. That Jesus has given you a new nature. Understand, my friend, if you're a child of God, this world is as close to hell as you'll ever get. It's only going to get better as God brings us to him and to spend eternity with him. God loves you. God knows you. God seeks you. God serves you. God has prepared a place for you. God is going to set a table for you. And that's worth celebrating. That's worth 
rejoicing. That's worth giving God glory instead of having a, and look, I, when I get to heaven, I'm, I don't know how heaven works. I'm going to be honest with you. I know we don't become angels. I got that figured out. But I don't know much more beyond that. But if, if there are sections of heaven, I'm asking God for the non-Baptist section. I ain't going to lie. And the reason is, since 1995, I, when I was a junior in high school, I've been preaching to Baptist people, and I'm tired of looking at some of y'all's faces. I want to see people with joy. I want to see people who gather in a place like their Lord is alive, not like Jesus is dead. And so, if there is, if you're in the Baptist section of heaven, I just wink at you, and I'm going to go on to the other part, to where there's, I see somebody's going to email, email me about using the word party, and I'm going to the party section when I get to heaven. I'm at least going to put the request in. Because Purim teaches us. This text shows us that there is a party in which we are to participate. But secondly, there is also a peace that's to be experienced. There is a peace that's to be experienced. Look at how chapter 10 opens up. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. So Ahasuerus, Erxes is his Greek name, he's still king. He did not repent. He did not get saved, and he imposed a tax. The people of God, they did not die, so he taxed them. That's just how the government works. They either kill you or they tax you, okay? Not much has changed since the days that Xerxes was king. The people are still in Persia. They're still under the rule of this pagan king, and their taxes have gone up. They don't like the government, and they're going through inflation. Am I starting to get a little close to us today? And yet, even in the midst of this context, they still celebrate. They still rejoice. <clears throat> you know why they threw a party during a tax increase from a pagan king? Because they knew another king, and they were part of another kingdom. Listen, if this world is your home, you will become bitter. If this world is your home, when you gather even on Sundays, you won't find much reason to celebrate. If this world is your home, you will have a difficult time celebrating. If this world, if you know this world is not your home, you'll be able to celebrate. Look at what it tells us in verse 2. And all the acts of his power, of the king's power and might, and a full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, 
And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought, don't miss this, he sought the welfare of his people and he spoke peace to all his people. You see in chapter 10, the people of God with a bit of hope because of Mordecai's presence. They're coming to the conclusion. They're saying, look, we have Mordecai. And Mordecai is the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth. And Mordecai loves us. And Mordecai cares about us. And Mordecai serves us. So yeah, things are bad. But not everything is bad. Not all things are bad. There is a bit of hope in the midst of what otherwise would be hopelessness. The people loved Mordecai because Mordecai was very different than Xerxes. King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, he led through intimidation. Mordecai leads them through affection. Ahasuerus, Xerxes, is a very selfish man, and all his decisions are self-serving and self-seeking. Mordecai, by contrast, is a very selfless man, and his decisions are for the well-being of his people. Xerxes wanted people to glorify him. Mordecai wants the people to glorify God. And look at what the end of verse 3 tells us that Mordecai spoke peace to all his people. The Hebrew word in this verse for peace is shalom. You ever heard of it? The word shalom. God made the world in shalom. And then sin entered and vandalized and scandalized shalom. Shalom is a world without sin. Shalom is a world without death. Shalom is a world without terror or fear or oppression or injustice or suffering. When God finished creating He said that everything was good. It was shalom. It reflected the character of God. But then sin entered and marred shalom. And the result of that is today we live in a world that's not shalom. But Mordecai comes along speaking shalom. Mordecai speaks life where there is death. He spoke truth where there were lies. He spoke light where there was darkness. And Mordecai gives them a vision of what life could be like. And by the grace of God, a vision of what life will be like when the prince of Shalom comes. Because the prophet Isaiah, in describing Jesus to us, one of the ways he describes him is that he is the prince of peace. He is the prince of shalom. We don't have shalom in this world today because we have not yet been visited again 
excuse me, by the prince of Shalom. So much so that even when there is celebration, even when there is salvation, there is no lasting Shalom. Everything is not right in this world. And if our hope for Shalom is in men or in government or in reform or in Democrats or in Republicans or in green parties or tea parties or green tea parties, whatever, If our hope for shalom is in man, we're going to be disillusioned and discouraged. Look, it doesn't matter how many wars we fight or how many dollars we spend. Shalom is never here to stay because the prince of shalom has yet to return. But he's going to. And when Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom returns, he's bringing Shalom with him. So when Mordecai speaks Shalom to the people, they love him because they hear from him a faint echo of the coming of Jesus in his voice. There is good news for us this morning. There is a peace that is to be experienced. Shalom is coming. It will not be here until the Prince of Shalom brings it, but he's preparing to bring it back, a peace that we can experience. There's a party in which we need to celebrate. There's a peace that we need to experience. And number three, there are some principles we need to remember. Let's put a bow on all this. As we conclude, Esther, it would behoove us to recall some of the principles that we have gleaned from God's activity in this book. And and I just want to give you three quick ones, okay? Number one is this. Kings rule over nations, but God rules over both. You see, we've seen this great Persian empire ruled by this great king, Xerxes, but over both of them, we have seen the rule and the reign of the Lord. You see, it's nothing new for people to look around the culture in which they live and to lose hope because there's no hope to be found. It's it's nothing new for people to to look at their economy and look at their context and go, how do we fix this and and, and how do we get out of this mess and who's going to help us? It's nothing new for us to look around us and to be disappointed with leadership and, and to be disappointed with how things are going. That's nothing new. But despite all of our disappointment, despite all the frustration, despite all of that, understand, never forget that God rules above all, that God God rules over all. It doesn't matter who you stick in a White House or who you stick on a throne in a monarchy or what dictator comes to power. God is still, always will be ruling from his throne. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there is something about that name of Jesus. And we need to remember that kings may rule over nations, but God rules over both. Second principle I want you to remember is that God is committed to caring for his people. 
in the book of Esther, God has continually pursued, continually loved, and continually saves his people. I don't know how far away you feel you are away from God or how you're running away from God, but I want you to know that God is committed to caring for you. Even when you don't care for him, he is committed to caring for you. And the third principle I want to leave you with is this. In the end, God wins and his people rejoice. You may walk into church like you've been raised on sauerkraut and weaned on lemon juice. (laughs) But there is coming a day you're going to rejoice. And my thinking is if we're going to rejoice then, and if this world's supposed to be preparation for eternity, that we might as well start now. Because in the end, God wins and his people rejoice. There's something, and I believe God did this intentionally. I believe Esther to be an inspired book of the Bible. And when you look at the literary outline of Esther, in the middle of the book, it is so dark. There's a bad king, there's an evil Haman, and there's a death sentence. If you were to pick up the book of Esther and just read the middle, it would discourage you, it would depress you. But by the end of the book, there is a celebration. For us, we are in the middle of the book right now. We're in the middle of life right now. And things may look dark, and things may look bleak. And there may be evil that we're trying to fight against. And there may be holiness that we're trying to struggle towards. But understand that in the end, we're in the middle of the story now, but in the end, wait until the end because the end gets better. God is going to work it all out. And in the end, we will rise from death. Sin will be no more. The prince of Shalom will come again. Our enemies, the enemies of God, like Haman, will be destroyed and we will live together as the people of God with something that is far more significant than Purim. We will join the angels. We will join God's people from all nations of the world and we'll sing the praises to our Prince of Peace. And that future gives us hope today to keep pressing on. Jesus is better. He is better than Mordecai. Mordecai saved people from one nation. Jesus saves people from every nation. Mordecai was only able to serve God's people in his generation. Jesus serves God's people in every generation. Mordecai saved people from a premature physical death. Jesus saves us from eternal death. Mordecai was a a godly ruler in a godless kingdom. Jesus is God, the king whose kingdom rules over all other kingdoms. You see, Mordecai ruled over a kingdom that came to an end but Jesus rules over a kingdom that will ever, never, ever end. And Mordecai brought peace between God's people and King Xerxes. 
But Jesus brings peace between the people God created and God himself. Jesus is a better Mordecai. Do you know that Jesus today? In just a second, we're going to pray. After we pray, we're going to stand, we're going to sing. It's called our time of commitment. You may have heard it called an invitation hymn. This altar is going to be open for you to pray. If you need to come pray, to pray. If you have questions about what it means to make Jesus your Lord, if, if today, through the foolishness of preaching and the inspired Word of God, the Holy Spirit has brought you to a point to where you see your need of this great Savior to bring peace in your relationship with God, and you've got questions about that, by all means, you just come ask us, and we'll get you with someone here before this day is done who can help share with you the steps we take to have peace with God. Maybe you have that peace, and maybe life isn't going that great. Maybe your step today is to take your eyes off of what is around you and to gaze upon the one who is within you and to pledge yourself to live with joy in your relationship with Jesus that transcends your circumstances. I don't know what your next step is. And the only thing I will ever ask you to do is just put your yes on whatever table God puts before you this morning. Father God, I thank you that Jesus is a better Mordecai and that he has done for us all that's required for our salvation. Whatever you're calling us to do in this time of commitment, Father, Help us to take that next step for your honor, for your glory. In Jesus' name.